Thank you for having me this morning. I am the pastor of Adult Ministries at Green Lake. It's awesome. It's a new role to me. I w- went on sabbatical this summer, which is awesome. And if you ever get a chance to not work for three months and yet still be able to sustain yourself, I highly encourage it. It was great. Uh, I don't really know what the pastor of Adult Ministries is because it's a new role at Bethany. So in about eight months, I'll be able to tell you what it is and whether or not I'm going to stay doing it because I don't know what it is yet. Um, but as we continue in our Roman series, let's, I'm going to re-pray. Not because you did it poorly. I just feel like we could use it. I mean, not, no offense. Uh, but join me again in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I really do thank you that you are both specific and general and you encompass all of our uniqueness and specific places in life. And, and yet you guide us towards yourself and guide us toward community. I pray that you would open your word to us. I pray that you would open uh, our hearts to you, that we would hear from you, uh, hear from you through each other, and that we would know a little bit more what it means to live in freedom and walk towards you in this aspect and, and place of life that we're in. Your name, amen. So this morning, we are looking at Romans 8, and I'm going to try to cover a bunch of it. So Brad already told you, but if you have a Bible, paper, or electronic, you might want to pull it out so you can refer to it. Uh, In the last couple weeks, we looked at uh, chapters 6 and 7. Now, surprisingly, we're looking at 8. And we've seen that Paul answers the question in these three chapters, what does it mean to be a Christian? He answers that question with the word freedom. And he goes on to explain that it's a freedom that, that, the, that God gives to us, but it's also a freedom that we choose. It's a freedom from the power of sin and death. It's also a freedom of or freedom toward life, salvation, and righteousness. So it kind of is this both and situation. The journey away from sin and death toward life and righteousness. Though theoretically, you'd think that would be a pretty easy like life to live and choices to make, Uh, like move away from things that are bad, move towards things that are good, like pretty straightforward and easy. Uh, Reality shows us something a little bit different. I shared this story a couple weeks ago with GreenLink in the form of an illustration where I mentioned that I was taking out the recycle, sorry, the compost. You should just know that I hate taking out the compost with my whole heart. Uh, I love the environment. I love being outside. I love obeying the law, which is you're supposed to throw the compost in the compost bin. I love supporting the concept of returning valuable nutrients to the soil uh, in order to help maintain soil quality and fertility. And yet the process of composting is such a burden. Is, does anybody else feel this way? Like sometimes you think maybe I just won't cook because then I don't have to deal with the compost. I'm glad that I'm not alone. So a couple weeks ago, I was carrying my cross and taking out the compost, and as I'm shaking out the plastic container, it slips out of my hand and falls into the compost bin. And we are lucky enough to have that big compost bin, so it's like waist high. And I'm really glad that it's so big because it gives plenty of space for the hundreds of maggots that live in there to like move around. So they're real comfortable in their home. Uh, but I, I like peered down into it, and it was relatively empty, and I see the plastic thing, and I was like, real quickly, it was an easy decision to make. Nope. Like, that's just going to have to stay in there, because there's no possible way I'm reaching in. I probably even couldn't have just, like, reached, and I would have had to do something a little bit more, as the abyss of rotten food is just hanging out. Little did I know at the time that it would be such a poignant illustration, like both in my life and in, in these other places where it's the epitome of choosing life over death. I mean, compost 
provides organic matter and nutrients which will improve plant growth and yield more fruit, food, right? More food means the ability to sustain more life. Throwing a plastic container into that situation does the opposite of creating more life. It actively inhibits creating life. So though theoretically this should be a pretty easy decision, like you accidentally threw this plastic thing in, be creative, figure out a way to get it out. It literally took me five days, and I'm a Seattleite, and so you know that I thought about it every day, like, oh, maybe I'll get it out today. Nope. Like, kept thinking about it. Five days and 1,300 people's worth of accountability for me to be like, oh gosh, I really should get that plastic thing out, because I told all these people that I threw it in there and left it. Uh, so, which was even a bummer because it was five days later, so there was stuff on top of the plastic thing. So it was disgusting. And I got some of it on my arm, which was like the worst part, but I'm okay. But all of this, like the, the, the fact that we can know what's right and wrong and still struggle with it is why we need Romans 8 to assure us that we can now live in, in freedom and to assure us that God himself, through the Spirit, will enable us to continue to leave behind sin and death and the power of evil and move towards life, salvation, and righteousness. As we look specifically at this chapter, which, side note, is part of the like Scripture Hall of Fame, in this one chapter, there are 15 famous quotes that you would probably recognize, many of them. All things work together for the good of those who love God. The Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. God is for us, who can be against us. That's just a couple of them, but it's like a big deal chapter. Romans is this comprehensive portrayal of what it means to be a Christian, and it's notably full of descriptions about the Holy Spirit. Paul focuses less on the character of the Spirit or how the Spirit relates to Christ and the Father, but more on what the Spirit does. And the Spirit is best known for the ministry on behalf of of Christians. So in chapter 7, A little bit from last week, Paul showed us that Christians still wrestle with sin. So if you do that, okay, you're in good company. In in verse 15, it says, what I hate, I do. Yet at the same time, Christians also experience a real disgust over sin. What I hate, I do. This is where the Holy Spirit comes to minister to us. The Spirit now works to do what we can't do, to overcome sin. The work of the Spirit is what chapter 8 is all about. So specifically through this chapter, we'll see that the Spirit is ministering to humankind in three ways. As the Spirit of life, the Spirit of adoption, and the Spirit of glory. So through these three ways is how the Spirit will minister to humankind through the Spirit of life, the Spirit of adoption, and the Spirit of glory. So the Spirit of life, which is verses 1 to 13 in this first paragraph of Romans 8, Paul reasserts what he's said before previously in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, that eternal life has now replaced the condemnation and death that is the lot of humankind. So because of the sin of Adam, we're just all destined to be condemned to death, but but Paul reasserts that eternal life has now replaced that condemnation. The phrase that Paul uses in verse 1 is much stronger than simply saying that we're not condemned. It's that there is no condemnation at all. There's no possibility of it. Not only are we not currently condemned, we can never, will never be condemned. It's completely out of the realm of possibility. In Christ, God has defeated death, but that's not all he's done. Through his son's work, 
God now sends the Spirit to his people to wipe sin out of our lives. The righteous requirement of the law can now be fully met in us, verse 4. Because we do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And the Spirit wipes out that sin, brings life by pointing out our sins. The places that we fall short, the places that we are living under our own authority rather than the the power of Christ, it's the Holy Spirit that points us to our need for Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who assures us that Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. These are kind of the two basic tenets of our faith, that we can't do this life, make this journey on our own. We need Jesus, and we have Jesus simply or only by faith. Karl Barth, who's a theologian, was a theologian and extensive writer on theology, articulates the ministry of the Holy Spirit by saying, When I'm assured that God's love is not just a general truth, it's not just a grand and eternal fact, but it is also for me, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is for me, that's the place we see the manifestation of the Spirit. That's where the gift and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, the assurance of Christ's love as a certainty. The Holy Spirit gives the gift of life. Verse 4 says that everything Christ did for us, his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, was in order that we would live a holy life. Jesus' whole purpose was to make us holy and be able to live this holy life. Tim Keller says that this is the greatest possible motive for living a holy life. That whenever we sin, we are endeavoring to frustrate the aim and purpose of the entire ministry of Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, if this doesn't work as an incentive for living a holy life, nothing will. So essentially he's saying like, whenever you sin, you're wrecking it. Hopefully that doesn't strike you or like sit with you as any sort of guilt trip or like it's you who's wrecking it. Nothing like that. I don't think he's saying that, but rather, I, I don't think he's also saying, like, you're in any threat of being kicked out at all. But rather, out of our awareness of all the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, we want to honor that by living a holy life. So again, not this guilt trip ac- aspect, but more, how do we honor what God did by living this holy life? The Spirit has made us alive, verse 10. And we will one day have renewed bodies, verse 11. And for now, we can choose the life of the Spirit who will put to death the sin nature. Put to death, I think, is a pretty like intimidating phrase, not really something I'm comfortable using very often. It's violent. It is very encompassing. Like It's kind of this like fin- finality to it. It means to declare war on attitudes and behaviors that are less than God's best for us. So again, though personally, I'm not a fan of that of physical aggression. In this case, to choose life means having no space or margin to play around with things that we know are not uh, God's best for us, that we know are moving us away from God and his community. To put those things to death, to move far from them. At the same time and on the opposite side of the coin, not only does it mean moving far from those sins or things that bring us to death, it also means choosing life and following the application of Christ in our hearts. So more than just resisting sin, we also want to pursue uh, in our hearts, our minds, and behavior, we want to pursue Christ who has given us this spiritual life now and will give us perfect bodies in the future. 
I think it's really helpful that, that Romans talks so much about bodies because it is this, a really good illustration in terms of, of our bodies. This concept is the same in how we take care of our bodies. To take care of ourselves physically requires both what we intake, what we eat, uh, and also pursuing exercise. To do one without the other leaves us kind of not in a very good space. Are you guys familiar with the term skinny fat? Uh, Brad told me in between services that that's his life. He just has to live that way. Um, to cross he bears. But skinny fat is, pers- is typically a person who has a pretty low caloric intake, might look thin or have numbers that are in the range of normal. But when it comes to body composition, they have more fat than is probably healthy for them and not enough muscle that's recommended for optimal health. So though they might look thin, they're not really necessarily like living in optimal health. The opposite is problematic too. If one pursues exercise, but because they pursue exercise, it means that they think they can eat whatever they want to eat, whenever they want to eat it, that's also probably not recommended for optimal health. So life of any kind requires both the avoidance of things that are harmful while at the same time pursuing things that are good, that are helpful for us. Sin can only be cut off at the root. We can only move towards life if we steer clear of the sin that we know harms us and at the same time expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of Christ for us. Sin grows when we think we deserve something from God or from, of life. Godliness and holiness grows when we remember that we are indebted to God throughout all of life, putting sin to death, and at the same time choosing to pursue Christ is part of what it means to have our minds set on what the Spirit desires, verse 5. So as the Spirit of life is the ruling idea of these first 13 verses, being children of God is what dominates 14 through 17. So first we saw the Spirit of life. Second, we see the Spirit of adoption. This paragraph is just a few sentences, 14 to 17, and it carries forward these themes of assurance in three ways. One, it gives further reason for the triumphant proclamation that believers who have God's Spirit will live. Two, it describes us as children of God, as God's people and heirs to his promise. And three, it provides further justification for Paul's categorical assertion that there is now no longer any condemnation in Christ. So the flow of this paragraph is pretty similar to that of Galatians 4, 1-7. In both texts, Paul affirms that believers are transformed from slaves to children of God through this redeeming sacrifice of Christ. Romans eight fifteen tells us of this sonship, or that, that idea of becoming a child of God as a received status, not a natural one. We're not born as God's children. We are adopted into his family when we receive his spirit. My biological parents are no longer together, and in fact, they both remarried. So when the holidays come, there's like all these sort of family gatherings, and they're all a little bit different from each other. So I've got, you know, my, what's the remainder of my dad's smallish family, like that's a thing, and then there's my mom's side of the family, and then there's my stepmom's side of the family, and my stepdad's side of the family, and in all of these events, uh, like you play a little bit of a different role, right? Like sometimes you're there and you're like, oh, these are my people, these are my jam. And then there's other places that you're like, oh, I'm a guest 
of your family. Like, I'm not really, I've been around for 25 years, but like, I'm still a guest in this situation. The same can happen if you go to a friend's house, right? There are some friends that you're there and you're very aware that you are there as a guest. Others that you're like, oh, I'm just one of the family. Or your in-laws, like you might have been married for 45 years and you're still like, not my family, you've made that clear. Paul wants to be very clear. In verse 15, he wants to clarify this, that this adoption is full and complete. We are not in God's family as a stepchild or as someone who just lives in his house like an au pair or somebody who's dropping by for a while as a guest. It means that we don't have to be our overly polite selves or sheepishly asked to borrow a towel. But equally, we don't have to obey or interact through it with God in any way that is like driven by fear. Often those who don't truly feel part of the family obey or go along because they feel like they have to in order to stay in that space. Fearing punishment or being aware that they might be kicked out, that they must earn their keep, which sometimes in this God-us uh, relationship can translate that if I'll obey so that you'll answer my prayers, you'll protect us, and so on. But then equally, that means if we perform poorly or we disobey, God might smite us or kick us out. Paul wants to be real clear, this is not the relationship that we have with God. Instead, we've received the spirit of adoption, the spirit that gives us the ability and the confidence to approach God as a father, nothing less than a full member of the family, that whole mikasa esukasa. When we know this security of ongoing love and forgiveness, unconditional love, we can obey out of our love of the father. We can be confident and assured that we're children of God, that he gives us more than we deserve, that our good performance isn't what keeps us in the family, but we are motivated out of our love for him, that we want to grow and become more like him, which is why we obey and, and seek the things that we think he's calling us to. Paul is very aware that living by the flesh, which is the opposite of living by the spirit, is a real possibility for Christians. Even though we're in Christ and we're in the Spirit, the law of sin and death may be, or may more accurately become again, the path that we choose to follow, which is why he's so clearly articulating the alternative. The Spirit of life, and that through the Spirit we're part of this new family, we've been adopted. Our old ways of sin need not hold on to us anymore. We are completely free from it. In order to continue encouraging us to live into this new life in Christ, Paul articulates the spirit of glory. So this third place, the spirit of glory, which is verses 18 to 30. One of my favorite things about Paul and in Romans is how in touch he is with the gap between like where we are versus where we wish we were or what we believe versus what we observe around us, kind of the reality, the, what we see is present. In verse 17, he makes a connection between suffering and glory. In verse 17 says, Now if we were children, then we are heirs. So what we just talked about. If we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. To just casually throw the word suffering out there caught my attention. Like, why wouldn't you say mild disappointments or like sometimes unhappy with the situation, but rather he throws out suffering. But Paul knows exactly what suffering is. 
As he's writing this, Nero, who's one of the most dangerous emperors in the history of, first centu- of the first century, is in power. He's a contemporary of Paul's. The gladiator games are actively going on, and people are being thrown to the lions in this very moment for Paul. That's suffering. He knows what life can be filled with. He knows how terrible it can be. There are many bad things. And in the midst of this, he's making this really strong point about suffering and glory. And he's not so much focusing on the relationship between suffering, suffering and glory, but rather their sequence. He assumes the fact that there will be suffering and sees it as this dark backdrop against this glorious future that is promised to the Christian that will shine bright with intensity. I think it's part of the reason that we love those testimonies where somebody's like, my life was in the pit and this is how terrible it was and I did all these terrible things, but then I met Jesus and all of a sudden I was freed from all those things and it was so beautiful. And certainly there's no like, hierarchy of testimonies, like one being better than the other. But in those stories, they're powerful because there's such a stark contrast that the goodness of Christ shines very brightly when things were very dark. I said in the beginning that chapter eight is answering the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And that the overall answer is that it means living in freedom. But Paul is digging deeper into that question, a question that he understands. How can a Christian maintain hope for glory or eternal life in the face of sufferings and death? How can those who have been set free from sin and death die? And how can God's very own dearly loved children suffer? He knows that people will have this question. He's most likely wrestled with it himself. He's smart enough to know that what he says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, and that people look around at their reality may think that those two things are in contradiction to each other. So thankfully, he's smart enough and explains in verses 18 to 30 that as Christians, we follow the Lord. And for Jesus, the way to glory was through suffering. In the same way that Christ experienced glory after suffering, so will we. The biggest difference is that Jesus' journey is finished and complete. But the life we now enjoy, much, much aspect, many aspects of, nonetheless, is incomplete. It's just begun. It's not fully worked out. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So for us, it's only when our mortal bodies are transformed will the life that we now have be visible and final. In the meantime, what we get to experience now is the first fruits, the pledge or first installment of God's gift to us, that it both anticipates and guarantees the gift of glory that's yet to come. The difficult times of pain throughout the world in us are similar to birth pangs. That's what the, the scripture in the message says. Because this world and each of us are not what we're meant to be. But one day we will be. This certainty is what Paul calls hope. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wants us to know and experience that living truth. It's also very important to Paul that we know how we fit into existence itself in the whole created order. In verses 18 and 19, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
J.B. Phillips, translate that, that verse 19 to say, the whole created order, so mountains, trees, animals, lakes, oceans, humans, all of life, the whole created order is standing on tiptoes, waiting for the children of God to come into view. I love that like imagery of all of creation is like, what are you going to do? There's this expectation that we're not only a part of the created order, but that we somehow, in our waiting for the completion of God's glory, we're also playing a, an important role in that, in how that will come about. This anticipation is like palpable. If we have a role to play in the whole fulfillment of the created order itself, think of how that changes and like, in many ways, upgrades everything that we're doing right now. How it upgrades the way we care for our pets or the way we care for our gardens how it upgrades the way we care for the lives of people around us and invest in younger generations or other folks, investing in things that count. If we have this role to play in the fulfillment of the created order, it means that our investment in doing God's will goes on into eternity, that this isn't the end of the story. When I think about that, I go, man, what does that mean to all the things that we do, to our jobs, the way we, we spend our days, the things that we're good at? Not only does that mean let the Spirit bring glory and eternity into what you're doing now, but it also means that whatever we're doing now can continue on into eternity where everything is fulfilled. I think this is a marvelous way to look at life. Because it means putting more emphasis on the now and more significance to what we're doing now. We don't live for the future. We live from the future. We know that it's going to all be fulfilled. It gives us more importance to what we do right here in the now. When the full glory of our status as God's children and heirs is revealed, the glory will be complete and powerful. It will encompass all of the created order, The glory that is coming will be so blindingly powerful that when it falls upon us, it will envelop the whole created order and glorify us alongside it. Some people, of course, see the material world as inherently bad. We should withdraw from it, stay away from it, be suspicious of physical pleasures. Others see the material world as all there is, and so it's inherently good. We should just enjoy it and live for the moment because it's all going to burn up and die anyway. I think for us, because we get to see it as a gift, we also get to see it as the beginning of the gift, this first fruits. It's a foretaste of the coming harvest. It's a gift from the Lord that we will enjoy now and in the future. We will be completely and totally free from the effects of sin and death in our bodies and our spirits, which means that as Christians, we can be confident people but not in ourselves or our circumstances. In the last part of chapter 8, Paul shows us the way to deep and unshakable confidence. Verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. As Christians, we're not shocked by the tragedies and hardness of life. We don't expect things naturally to work out for good. When something does work out for good, it is all and only because of God's grace working with us, with his children, for those who love him. When something goes wrong, we still know with absolute certainty that God is working good for us, working good for his creation. We've covered a lot of ground today, and I kind of give myself an A plus for covering 30. I know, thank you, 30 verses uh, in less than 30 minutes. 
Um, but, but I do think it gives us an opportunity to look at the Spirit in these multiple ways. That we are part of God's family. That we have the Spirit of life available to us, but we also have some choices to make. And that we can live for today from the future. We can live in the future glory today. This life of freedom requires not only an initial choice, but an ongoing choice. A choice to choose the Spirit to guide us, to move away from the sin and death that sometimes we're drawn to towards life and righteousness. There are for sure a number of things that I'm sure we can all think about where we're killing it, like in the good way. Like we're doing a really good job pursuing pursuing Christ, living in the Spirit, good job. Like not everything is bad. But then there's also some places that I think that we could probably move away um, from, from things that are not what's best for us. Nadia Boltz-Weber, who is just a human. She's a pastor. Sometimes she says crazy things. Sometimes she says amazing things. One of the things that I think she's said amazingly, when she talks about Romans 8, says that she can't logically explain how the Spirit works or what the love of Christ in God means in the same way that she can't say what the color blue smells like. Like, she just doesn't know, like, she doesn't have words for that. But because of how active God is and the ability that we have to look back and to look around, we can explain what the Spirit is like. And we can explain what the love of God in Christ is like. Because we see it amongst us. We see it amongst each other. We see it in, in our history. We can help each other understand God, understand the gifts that he's given us, uh, this, this spirit of life, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of glory. More accurately, we can see the way in which God's love has allowed us to love each other and helps us to believe that this is real. Like when you think about Christianity very long, you're like, am I crazy? Uh, but this allows us to dare to live as if it's true. As we respond with this last song, I'd encourage you, I'll do it too, to check in with God and hear, again, how you're doing a great job, but also hear where he might want us to switch things up a little bit in order to live this life of freedom. Uh, Brad and I talk about the Spirit maybe a little more than the average Bethany pastor, but the, the, the cultivating of the Spirit takes time and is sometimes slow and I think is really helpful within community because the Spirit looks different for all of us and sounds different sometimes. And so I would encourage you again as we listen to this last song and engage in worship with it to just check in with the Lord and see where you're at and where he might want to move us. Let me close this in prayer. Lord God, I thank you so much that we do live a life of freedom. I thank you that you offer that to us as well as help us to make the choice that, that we but say yes and then you are the strength to walk towards you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear from you now. Uh, again, hear the places that we are doing well and that you uh, are a part of our lives and we're engaged with you, but then also the places where we have some growth opportunities and where it might be healthier for us to move away uh, from that as we move towards you. Your name, amen.